Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on what is another exciting episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, plugging in from sunny Florida, where I am currently enjoying a fun, friendly family vacation. But not even the beach and a Mai Tai could keep me away from the mic, especially when we have a guest of this caliber, Suzu, a well-followed crypto investor and market commentator the founder of crypto investing firm Three Arrows Capital. Sue Zoo was one of our most watched the Scoop Live episodes. So it's honestly about time that we upgraded you to the proper recorded show. Sue, thanks so much for coming on the show. Frank, thanks for having me. It's always great. We've been trying to get better on the show about tying our episodes and guests to recent news. Obviously, last week saw a profusion of prime broker-related news from a number of different firms, anchored probably by Coinbase's announcement that it would acquire crypto broker Tagomi. Tagomi, for folks who aren't aware, gatecrashed the crypto market scene in 2018. They're backed by Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, and they have a slew of crypto-native investors behind them as well. Freero Capital was an early client of Tagomi. With that context laid out, I'd be curious to get your opinion on the deal at a high level, and then we can pick apart at some of the granularities and the necessity for a prime broker in crypto at this point. But let's start at a high level. What are your thoughts on this deal? Yeah, I think, I mean, my views on it are probably more controversial than most. So um, I'll try to just be as honest as possible because I think that that's, that's important. But, but you know, it's, Tagomi, I think they generally struggle to get traction because the, the main problem is that there's not as much of a need for a prime broker if there's not some kind of a funding leg to it or some kind of a leverage to it, right? Because the main users of aggregation are uh, more higher frequency trading firms and more specifically like quant trading or arbitrage firms because they're the ones who are very sensitive to you know one, two, three basis points and uh, very sensitive to market impact. So for firms like those, first of all, they need post-margin trading. And second of all, they need an ability to uh, late settle trades and uh, to be able to be very flexible. And so Tagomi was kind of always like imagined as more of like a like white glove website aggregating exchanges plus some OTC brokers. And, and they had a great 
I mean, they have a great investor list, right? So they have like, you know, Bitstamp guys, they have Coinbase guys. So it kind of made sense why it could be good. But in practice, there's just, there's not a real end customer for that, I feel. So, so I mean, for yeah. us personally, I we step in. Yeah. I just want to step in for a second to kind of set the scene maybe for the listener. I think you're making an incredible point and I'm excited to see where you go with it. But at the heart of your argument here is the fact that folks need to fully fund their account to then trade yeah. across these different yeah. market venues, which yeah. is really cool for some folks, but that's a very limited client pool. It's not a whole lot of people. And, and so, you know, especially with OTC desks, like the desks that don't have balance sheet, that don't trade on post margin, like they don't get much volume. They get maybe like one big ticket like every few weeks or like here and there, but they're not the ones doing the volume in the market, right? The volume that actually happens in the market is all done post margin, you know, with Jump, Cumberland, Alameda, these kind of firms. And the reason is that you have to be able to compare quotes from multiple sources and then deal on the best one and then settle. You can't first fund it and then compare like, you get what I mean, right? Like you have an X amount of capital you want to spend on a trade. You have to first aggregate what you have before giving them the funds. So I think ultimately, Togomi, I think they did try to go more toward that route. I mean, for us, we use a firm called Falcon X quite a bit. Uh, Falcon X, I think they're backed by Lightspeed, Excel. I, I can't remember their investor list, a few others. But like we're one of the largest customers nowadays. They just raised um, $17 million. They just raised as well. A, or they just announced it, yeah. rather. And I think, you know, they they kind of started from a different perspective, which is like, who, like, who is the actual customer for aggregation? What do they want? Right. So, you know, they, they have like weekend settlement, partial settlement, you can, uh, trade on post margin, you know? So it's just like, at the end of the day, the, the thing about prime brokerage in the traditional world too, is that to be honest, most hedge funds that use a prime broker, they either use it for long short equities, right? Where they're borrowing lending or they use it for credit intermediation, right? Like trading with many different bank counterparties, trading derivatives and swaps against many counterparties and aggregating it into a single credit line. So even in the real world, you're, you have to be relatively sophisticated to want to use that and then also relatively price sensitive. So I think that um, prime brokerage is ultimately a space that you need to have alpha on the lending leg, not on the aggregation leg. Aggregation is cheap, right? Uh, you know, you anybody five, can build that out. You take you take Anyone five dudes quotes. Out. You take five dudes quotes. You put it in an API. Like you haven't done anything, right? And most trading firms can write APIs themselves. I mean, we can write to ODC brokers APIs ourselves, right? So ultimately, there has to be something a little bit more. And I think to go, I mean, they always struggle to find that. So I feel like this sale to Coinbase is almost like a. I don't want to put too harsh of a spin on it, but I would say it's probably just like a you know just like a cut loss, just to say stop the bleed. We end it here, and you know we bring in like the tech IP into the firm, and we call it a day. And because if you think about it too, like an exchange owning uh, previously a neutral aggregator, it's just, if you don't have neutrality across your v- venues as a prime broker, if you, if you lack that neutrality, then it's like you get, you get into a very, very dangerous slippery slope, right? And so I think there's a few things from the traditional world that I think for prime brokers, they have to be neutral. They have to have no bias toward one of their sources. And they also have to be not doing a lot of like principal trading on their own as well, right? So some of the firms that have entered prime brokerage recently, they're very good at separating, you know, principal versus, you know, client facing. Because, you know, as a large client in the market, it's super dangerous thinking, you know, if you put this flow through this thing, people are going to be watching it. And then, you know, they're also prop trading based on that, right? So there are certain types of flows that we would give to some, some brokers or some liquidity sources that we would never give to others because you don't know what they'll do with that information. So ultimately, if an aggregator is owned by a specific exchange or a specific thing, 
that opens yourself up to a lot more information leakage. So I think the new entrants in Prime Brokerage have been, I guess, Genesis Prime and then also BitGo, right? And you know, we do a lot of business with both these firms. I think that that those stories are are a lot more cogent and make a lot more sense because what they're doing is they're giving people margin financing across a list of you know derivative exchanges and then a list of spot exchanges and helping to make that market a lot more efficient, right? And have all the futures bases come in line and all the spot markets come in line. So I think both those solutions I'm um, I'm pretty excited about and I think that. They they know their end customer really well, right? I mean, these firms, especially Henesis, they, they I mean, they understand the trading firm mentality and what they're trying to do better than anyone. And they're also very good at neutrality, right? They're not going to try to think about how do they do that trade better than the client. They're not going to think about how do I build my own trading desk that like you know eats into what they're doing. So so I think ultimately that that's how I see Prime. There are obviously questions of whether or not Coinbase acquiring this firm will translate into conflicts of interest between the two brands, right? Can we trust the neutrality of Tagomi as a Switzerland routing orders to various venues if they are in fact owned and operated by a venue itself? And I think this question is very similar to the one to the questions that hung over the uh, coin market cap Binance yeah, deal. Exactly. Um, yeah. But looking at this deal and of course there are synergies between the two companies that could be beneficial to both sides. Does the acquisition by Coinbase impact the neutrality of a platform like Tagomi? And do you think that some of the partners will maybe pull out if it's, you know, a company like Gemini, for instance, like, are they going to want to be a partner with a Coinbase subsidiary? If that unravels, then where's the value proposition, right? If partners start pulling out, that just plays into the hand of, of other aggregators like Falcon X, et cetera. I mean, these are exactly the kind of uh, points that I would agree with, right? I mean, if you think about neutrality, you could have a situation where a client uses, let's say, an aggregator like Tagomi that's owned by another exchange, and the exchange could give preference. Let's say the trade could have gotten done on exchange A or exchange B. There are so many ways on the back end to have that volume end up routing toward the exchange which owns it, and no one will ever even know. You could even Ultimately, you could even mask where that trade got done. You could just say this got done on Tagomi best price. You could call it, a, you could give it a fancy new name, right? And then you could end up internalizing that flow onto Coinbase market makers. You could strike deals with Coinbase market makers and you could say, guys, we're going to end up eventually eating all the volume that comes on this. We're going to say it's an aggregator, but we're going to find, because, because it is also a lot of the same market makers on these other exchanges, you know, with various common deals, various commission fee deals. So once the neutrality of an aggregator is sort of tied to one of the players, it's just game over, right? Because it, it doesn't even make any sense. And you would ultimately be far better suited as a client if you use an aggregator like a Falcon X, for instance, where they are not going to want to route you toward A because that's how they get paid, right? If you're not in Tagomi, you, you almost certainly get paid based on routing more volume to Coinbase. Every day you wake up, you're like, how do I route more volume to Coinbase? How do we increase you know, volumes in market share? So like the whole... It's not even a question of like neutrality is even possible. It's if they had neutrality, if I was a Coinbase investor, I would be like, so where, how am I going to make my money back? Right. Am I just going to own this thing and then hope that it, you know, gains market share in its market? No, they're going to want synergies. Right. So I think it's, uh, it's interesting. Ultimately, I do think Prime is a very important development in this market because a lot of the flash crashes that we've seen in spot markets were precisely because these exchanges had very poor margin trading facilities for market makers. Right. Think about Bitstamp with that huge crash from 8 to 5.4 or whatever it was. I think it was April, May 
2019. Can't remember the exact date, but basically, I mean, that crash, it never should have happened, right? Uh, it only happened because market makers didn't have enough USD on Bitstamp to be able to place bids. And the reason why they didn't is because no one has margin financing on Bitstamp or not to any real size. So if market makers had that, then immediately that flash never would have gotten there. You know, market makers would have absorbed the sell and then sold other venues and you would have a much more orderly price discovery, right? And that's the same problem you have on Kraken as well. You, you sometimes see these insane wicks on Kraken. You're like, what's going on there? Why, why are market makers not trading there? Well, the reason they're not trading there is because they, you know, they have better things to do with their money, right? Then sit around all day with their dollars on a Kraken hoping that the market wicks. So I think margin trading is incredibly healthy for spot markets. If they were smarter, they would have done it three years ago, two years ago. And I think now they realize, hey, like we really need to have this. Like otherwise, no one's going to be trading on spot exchanges because it's much, you know, they're much better served in you know derivative markets, in uh, OTC spot markets. So I think Prime ultimately ties the synthetic markets and the spot markets together much more tightly. And it opens up a whole new world in terms of the different trading strategies available to you as a yeah. trader. I've talked to many different folks about this deal and just the need for prime brokers in crypto specifically with many describing it as a key piece of infrastructure for folks like you and, and obviously mainstream quote unquote, traditional investors who have yet to dive into the market um, for a traditional investor, right? They don't want to face a counterparty like Wobi or, or even to your point, they don't want to, have to be sitting on Kraken all, all day long waiting for those opportunities. They just want to be able to go when they can and have someone sitting in between them who can handle the legwork of linking up to these venues, the technical legwork, the regulatory legwork, etc. And for a crypto native investor, it offers that one-stop shop, right? If you actually have all the bells and whistles, if you have the settlement components, if you have the ability to trade with credit, if you have the ability to trade spot and derivative side by side, that helps bring down costs for certain arbitrage trades. So we've talked about a lot of the things that are missing, but in a perfect world, if Three Arrows Capital was plugged into a prime broker that had all of these functionalities that we're talking about, these functionalities that are missing, what are some trades? What are some strategies you could do that you can't do today? Well, I think, um, you know, I've already alluded to a few, but basically right now for most exchanges, it's very onerous to rest limit orders uh, continuously because of the fact that you have to fund them in those exchanges. So with increased funding, let's say you take BitGo's new product, right? They're going to give people, I think on Bitstamp and I think on Coinbase, they're going to give people margin financing basically as like a clean, like net open position line, similar to an FX markets. If you have that, people can then come in, they can post orders all day. And even if they get one fill for 1,000 order amends and for you know lots of liquidity rested, that will still be profitable for them. right? And that starts getting crypto market structure much more close to you know traditional futures markets. So in futures markets, the top two by far clears are uh, SockGen, NewEdge, and ABN Amaro. And the reason is that these guys give very, very high leverage to HFT firms who say, I need to have a very high multiplier on my capital on what I can put on the exchange as a limit order. And I'll be flat in, flat out. I won't have any risk overnight, but I will put rest a ton of orders in futures markets, right? And obviously, when you get into that zone, 
these firms are incredibly selective about who they onboard, right? They'll probably only onboard you if you have, you know, a serious track record as an HFT trader, uh, having worked at, you know, the top Dutch firms or the top Chicago firms, and you have a strategy that you can explain ex- incredibly clearly, and you have the ability to, you surely have, you have the ability to execute, then they'll start you on that kind of thing. But huge amounts of futures volumes happen through those firms, huge amounts of spot stock uh, volumes through that firm. In the FX markets, huge amounts of volume are traded by firms that are not that well capitalized, but use FX prime brokers to be able to rest huge amounts of orders in the markets. So I think ultimately you're going to see crypto go toward that route, right? Where if there is a 10 mil bid on one exchange, there's no reason that can't get reflected onto another one where now you, you'll see the same liquidity reflected back and forth. That has some interesting implications for takers as well, because it now means that being a taker and an aggressive trader on a lesser venue is much less of a problem than it used to be before. So I think it'll definitely lead to more fragmentation. It'll lead to um, sort of volumes dissipating across wherever these prime brokers will support. You know, you can have, in theory, um, new exchanges come up that go on the prime broker network that have their own client base that like now you can show him prices that are extremely tight, extremely good settlement. So I think it lends itself to this FX market structure where, you know, you, you see fragmentation upon fragmentation and you see a lot of room for local regional players to, to capture a sustainable piece of the pie. So for trading firms as well, I think the markets are going to get way more efficient, right? They've already gotten a shit ton more efficient just in the past few months. And if you compare to a year or two years ago, it's, it's incredible, right? It used to be 10% ARBs between exchanges, then 1%. Now you'd be lucky to get three basis point ARBs between spot exchanges when things are calm. So, And that's despite fragmentation being higher than it's ever been, I would say, in the history of this market. Every yeah. day a new exchange launches at least it seems right. You know, we just had two, I think we reported on last week, go live, all of them promising the white glove services, the institutional know-how that has been missing. It's the same, you know, marketing lines we hear time and time again. I guess my, my next question would be when you think about that fragmentation, right? There's a lot of work and effort that goes into doing due diligence on a new exchange And if you have someone that can sort of sit in between that, it brings a lot of the costs down, a lot of the effort, a lot of the time down and makes it just a smoother process. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, another trend you're seeing there is uh, with external custody, right? Or the idea that a trading firm can have their coins or, or their capital with some third party intermediary that's trusted. And then the new exchange or the you know less trusted exchange would also have assets there. And those assets would move across kind of algorithmically from the trading firm to the uh, exchange. And in that sense, you know, the trading firm can be sure that their capital is safe, right? That they can't lose all their money just because the exchange goes down. And so that kind of stuff too is also quite good for sort of, you know, more niche uh, regional players to come up and try to get market share. Because now you can attract very strong spot market liquidity and not even fake liquidity, but real liquidity that people could trade on through these kind of methods. And people, market makers don't fear as much their capital being posted on these exchanges. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I want to get one more question in on the prime stuff, and then I want to move on to a few other controversial topics that I think you'll find fun and you'll be keen to opine on them. So obviously, you know, we kind of picked on Coinbase and Tagomi a little bit, maybe not a little bit, maybe more than a little bit, but There are obviously other questions hanging over other aspiring prime brokers for Bitco, right? There's this, there's this question of how do you balance between 
providing services to your wallet clients who in some cases might be competing with you on the trading side and then also building out this new trading prime business. And then for Genesis, right, there's a question of if you have your proprietary trading desk making markets across the ecosystem, how do you then instill or implement the necessary and proper firewalls or Chinese walls that can ensure that that side of the business isn't improperly seeing what's going on on the agency side. So it's not necessarily like one company has a completely solid avenue to getting from point A to point B. There are thorns for everyone along the path. But I guess looking at those other two players, do you give credence to some of those arguments about how they might run into trouble in, in sort of building this out? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about the early days of crypto, right, or the early days for Bitcoin, it was very cooperative in the sense that, you know, you had Genesis using BitGo Wallet, you had everyone using each other's things. And now we're kind of in the phase, you know, 2020, where companies are like, okay, you know, we've been around four, five, six years. How do we extract revenue? How do we build a, a proper revenue generating market, right? So I think for Bitco, them being able to see all of their, you know, customers, that their wallet customers doing well, you know, whether that's exchanges or ODC brokers or lenders. And then they're sitting there and be like, you know, I'm charging 2K a month per user for hot wallets. I'm sitting here trying to charge for custody, but no one wants to pay for custody. And, you know, it's, it's so I think for them, it, it was like, well, we already are holding the coins. Can we not compete with our customers and do some of these services, right? They're, they're already seeing the flows of coins going in and out. But of course, you know, if you're a customer of BitGo, then you might think, okay, well, that's kind of, that's kind of unfortunate, right? And like now I wouldn't want to use the custodian I wouldn't use, want to use as a custodian a custodian that wants to do my business, right? Because 100%. Like, on a crazy day, maybe they don't release my coins. Maybe they release their own coins first and they have my coins sitting in storage while there's huge ARBs in the market and my trading firms then leave me, right? Uh, you kind of saw some aspects of that in the March 12th moves where you know some firms are much more reliable than others and the market remembers these things too, right? So, so I think that ultimately those will all be questions. And I think that kind of feeds into why Genesis bought that small custodian uh, vault, right? Because they, they want to be able to do their own custody, right? So, so it's kind of like. But that's an exact that's an exact case study of what I'm talking about. You know, Genesis yeah, was absolutely. a client of Bitco, and then, to my knowledge, I'm I'm sure the Bitco folks will be calling me up if they have like one one hundredth of a Bitcoin somewhere in a Bitco wallet. But to my knowledge, they are not a client of Bitco anymore, and for that exact reason. Yeah, I think people do understand now that Prime could become a very big pie. Uh, because it will be the fuel for the entire trading of Bitcoin versus like dollars, Ether versus dollars for the entire world, right? So, so I think that for the trading firms, though, it's not going to be an either or situation. I think, you know, for us, we use all the top brokers, we use all the top lenders, because ultimately, you know, there are firms, you know, that they're in it for the long run, right? Like Genesis, DCG, like, you know, they're in it for the long run. They are very clients first always, right? So that's something where, you know, you have to understand, like, you know, if there's a new entrant in the space and then say they want to do this or they want to do that, the question is, okay, well, on a crazy day, what will they do? Not on a simple day, what will they do, right? If on a crazy day, they, you know, they won't release you your coins, they won't have anyone around to talk to you, <laughs> they won't have anyone around to get stuff done, you know, that, that has to be added to the price, right? So I think reputation and um, service, ultimately, these things are priceless, right? And so the number of credible firms that can, you know, attest to neutrality, attest to being there, during very stormy times, there, there are like 
I can't fill up one handful. So I think the, the number of firms that can buy to be a prime uh, broker in crypto are very few. And that's why also we haven't seen any that have gotten sort of predominant huge market shit. And I think that even if there were a very good one, uh, it would ultimately lead toward a sort of a multi, like a multiplayer game where firms would want to have several just in case of concentration risk. So I think the pie will be shared. Um, and I think it'll be shared among very reputable names that um, understand that they'd be slashing their entire reputation if they do a disservice to the market or do a disservice to the trading uh, counterparties. I mean, similarly to traditional markets, firms are going to want to have several prime brokers, just like they would want to have several custodians that they interact with. But if there's one clear winner, I think DCG is at the top of that list. You you talk about history of reputation, they have that. You think about balance sheet, they have that. The knowledge of operating in all of the key businesses that make up a prime broker, lending, trading, they were pioneers in both and are one of the Absolutely. longest operating companies in this space. So I think you would agree. Is there anyone who's maybe a close second in your opinion? I mean, I think BlockFi has some elements of there. I mean, because of their deposit base, I mean, their lending product is, is very strong. You know, they, they don't have the trading side though. So they're ultimately unlikely to go into prime, I think, to face tr trading firms and, and clear trades and, and this kind of things. But if they did, they could have very good terms that uh, it would be harder for Genesis to beat if they don't have those kind of client deposits. So I think BlockFi is always one to watch. I mean, we're an investor in them, so we're a little bit biased. Uh, but um, I think that BlockFi... Um, it's, it's kind of like the difference between commercial banking and, I guess, investment banking. You could think of like Genesis as like an investment bank, right? They're incredibly sophisticated and incredibly attuned to reputation and, and kind of quality service. You can think of like BlockFi having sort of a very strong sort of a broad deposit base and, and sort of broad reach. And, and from that, you kind of are able to offer to the market more compelling opportunities based on that. So I think that Ultimately, I don't think there will be one runaway leader because there will then be competition on fees. There will be competition on, on other things that will ultimately entice people toward competitors, toward a more shared model. There's no network effects, right? Like because it's broker to client, it's not like because that broker or, or that prime broker is the best, therefore everyone needs to use them. Like that's not really true, right? Uh, because, you know, using a new one, it's still, you know, there's still apples to apples. So it's not a winner-take-all model in the way that social networks or sort of like other models might be more winner-take-all. If you think about winner-take-all models, like something like a Fireblocks might be more winner-take-all, right? Because for them, almost the entire OTC market uses them now to move coins around to each other. Uh, and now we're using it to move Fiat as well. You know, we're using it to move Fiat on Sen, on Silvergate, as well as on Signature. So, you know, and that has a lot of lock-in effects because once you're on it and that's how you settle coins with the counterparty, you have not much need to try out a new one and go through all that work because everyone's already on the same network. So I think that that's a, that's a kind of market structure where I would say there's a lot of lock-in effects and the first one to run away with it just has it forever, kind of like a Bloomberg. I think it's a good point to uh, shift gears. We've kind of dissected everything we can in this burgeoning, budding prime broker market. Another thing that's changed, and, and I think Suzu will appreciate this uh, more than anyone else, is the perception of Tether in the market. Many folks, I think, if you hearken back on the early days of 2018, or rather the later days of 2018, end of that year, people might have thought we were a little too tough on Tether and Bitfinex. And of course, the 
the range of opinions on Tether is quite extreme from folks thinking it's an outright fraud to some folks thinking that maybe it's just woefully mismanaged to others thinking it's a real critical piece of infrastructure in the ecosystem. And I think a lot of our opinions on Tether for all folks across that range have seen, you know, their thoughts sort of challenged in many respects, right? Whether it's Leo not doing so well or just the development of Tether far surpassing any of these rivals that came on in 2018, 2019. So I'm kind of setting the stage here, but recently, or rather last night, this is being recorded on May 30th, um, Coinbase Custody, Coinbase International announced that they would accept withdrawals and deposits in Tether, right? And so it shows how far we've come, or rather how far Tether has come from this sort of maybe shady enterprise to something that has really um, cemented its position as key infrastructure. So I guess I guess we can talk about the development first and then just this transition of Tether. So let's start with the Coinbase news. To what degree do you think that this is something that's significant? I mean, this is probably, as CMS Holdings described on Twitter, this is Coinbase caving to an extent and dipping its toes in the tether pool. What do you think this means? Yeah, I think, I mean, the markets, um, especially the parts of the market that were sort of less friendly to tether and into Bitfinex, I think they kind of sort of realized that, you know, it's not going anywhere. And in fact, they're getting more sort of market adoption than, you know, competing options. And also that it's not a zero sum game that they're kind of uh, capturing different markets and sort of growing it in different ways. So I think, for me, at least, the like the best way to understand Tetherfud, like from the past as well, is from the perspective of you know you had a lot of controversies in 2016, even with let's say Bitfinex and some other players uh, from the Bitfinex hack, and then you had first you had the you know when when Tether was banked in Taiwan, and then those banks froze, and you had very erratic trading, and then you had a couple other freezes. So I think there were firms that got hurt in those moves, and there were also Firms that are even firms that depend very heavily on Tether to survive, like exchanges like Binance or and these kind of things, they sort of always had a love hate relationship because on the one hand they need it to be able to drive liquidity to their exchanges, but on the other hand they really wish that they didn't need it, and so that was kind of the love hate that they had. And I think for a while, especially during early 2019, where you saw a lot of Tether redemptions and you saw it go to a discount window for quite some time, people thought, hey, maybe this means that you know. USDC will take over the Tether market cap completely, right? So, you know, you had these random days where suddenly, like, people buy TUSD up 20% premium versus Tether, or you have people buy, like, USDC up 6% premium, you know? And and so, like, ultimately, I think that that kind of narrative has completely left the markets now as people realize, you know, there are swaths of the world that they're very familiar with how Tether works, and they like how it works for them, and the sizes that they can do, and the liquidity that's available on exchanges, and the deposit base. That kind of realization and the and the sort of grassroots growth of that ecosystem has been very fast, right? And has been very organic. So I think Coinbase offering it is ultimately just an admission that, like again, it's not a winner-take-all game and that we will have multiple stable coins. We will have multiple regulatory frameworks. Global regulatory arbitrage is something that, you know, for me sitting here in Singapore, like Singaporeans always talk about regulatory arbitrage because Singapore exists because of its desire to be in a location of regulatory arbitrage. And I think Tether, in a way, is similar. It, it's it's a regulatory arbitrage, but it's also 
you know, they're not sort of beholden to the same kind of, they're trying to do a service to the ecosystem and also make money. And that's the global crypto ecosystem, not necessarily the US ecosystem or the New York ecosystem. So I think that, you know, some of the players in crypto, when they come at it from a very provincial perspective from the US, they judge it with a certain kind of a way and then they don't quite understand what it actually is. And so I think that, uh, you know, for the players in Asia or even in LATAM in Europe who use Tether, who trade with it, who redeem and deposit it, uh, I think they, they understand the whole picture. And so, yeah. so I think information asymmetry is very big. I think the people who know the most about it are probably the most constructive on it and they understand why it's so popular. And the other side of it, you know, they're kind of a bit conspiracy theorists, kind of a bit, I don't know the word, but I, I think it's, it's ultimately that they're trying to pick a fight, basically. Well, I mean, there are two sides to every story, but the bottom line is Tether rules liquidity in Asia and, and globally, and it, it's probably tied or tethered. I really want to get a pun in this episode to that more global perspective that they take. But at the same time, right, like they are still being roiled by this regulatory fight with the New York Department of Financial Services. There was the whole issue with crypto capital. There was the whole issue with their funds being backed only 74% by U.S. dollars. When you look at that side, though, is it fair to say, especially over the growth we've seen over the past you know, six months, that the fact that Tether rules liquidity outweighs all of those concerns? Yeah, I think, I think that's because it's doing a service to the whole world, right, in, in sort of bridging the liquidity across all these exchanges and allowing, you know, fiat on-ramp, off-ramp, I think that being in that position, it automatically attracts the attention that sort of all regulators put onto crypto itself. So it's kind of like, almost like it attracts that because it's trying to do it. You see what I'm saying? So, so in, in other words, if it was another firm doing it, they may also attract the same thing if they were trying to do the same thing. So I think it's growth shows the, the global demand for stable coins, right? There is massive demand to start settling cross-border trades, to start using it as money for a whole host of reasons, right? And so I think that in the end, it's all about what is useful to people, right? Because a lot of the people that use stable coins, they don't even care what Tether is. I mean, they just know USDT. They say it's USD with a T at the end of it, and it's $1, and we you know move it around, and we use it to pay for things. Uh, or you use it to settle trades, or we use it for investments, you know, ultimately, I think that kind of shows sort of the, I mean, the power of that network effect, and then also the like the power of, um, or, or rather like the divergence in the narrative, right? Because like, you know, just to take an example, right? There are some family offices in Singapore or Hong Kong is they will never touch a US firm, they will never use a US counterparty, they'll never buy a property in the US. And because why they'll say, look, maybe one day we're in World War Three, or one day we're in this and that, and that gets frozen. I don't know, maybe they elect a socialist president, right? Who knows? But like, there's a lot of people like that, actually. Like, there are people like, I don't want to have my KYC like in the US ever. They might say that. So I think it's like, the perception of what is safe and what is not safe really depends on where you sit, right? If you're, if you're a Chinese person now, I'm sure it doesn't feel very safe sitting in, you know, some parts of the world. Whereas if you're you know, in America, you probably don't feel safe in other parts of the world. It's ultimately, I think, Tether is sort of the most neutral of the stable coins in terms of safety. And, you know, they're banked very well in Deltic, which is a almost not fractionally reserved bank. So I think it's kind of not surprising at all to me uh, that it has a lot of adoption and a lot of usage. Uh, and I don't, I get why people are surprised, but I really think they shouldn't be if they looked at it from a broader view. How can they blow this lead? 
what mistakes or missteps can Tether make to allow something like USDC to take the crown or to look at that on the flip side, what can USDC or some of these competing stable coins do to take Tether's crown? You look at something like Paxos, which is trying to be a white label service provider for all the different Asian exchanges. Maybe that helps it get there. Um, USDC is looking to build out its consortium. Maybe that helps it get there. So how could Tether maybe lose its crown? I think it's very unlikely to lose it due to, let's say, USDC or PAX taking over that incumbent market. It would have to be sort of another round of sort of people thinking that Tether is completely unbacked or it's backed very poorly or redemptions halt or things of that nature. But I think that, you know, with Coinbase adding it as custody, with people realizing the financial strength that is ultimately backed with now and the and the sort of long-term partnership quality of their banking relationships now versus one, two, three years ago, you know, I think that all plays into it. But I think that, you know, USDC, they're going really fast, right? I mean, now that USD rates are zero, you know, there's no opportunity cost between holding dollars in the bank versus the dollars in a coin. So, you know, when we settle an OTC trade, uh, where there's a collateral leg to it, you know, we, we don't mind setting a leg as USDC now, whereas before we would say the leg has to be, you know, USD or something like that. So because ultimately it doesn't, it's not earning interest anyway, right? It's it's kind of like it's become like a like a commodity now, like a dollar. Uh, it's a, it's a non cash flow <laughs> yielding instrument. So I think that that actually will help stablecoins from the highly regulated like you know side of the space quite a bit. I think that you know PAX. What they're doing with uh, HUSD and BUSD is obviously very smart for them because you know they can't really go head to head with USDC. They also can't go head to head with USDT. So they're helping sort of top tier brands like Huobi and Binance create their own stable coins and sort of do all the back end for them. Right? OKX went a bit of a different route, and I think their USDK is sort of like you know, no one's really using it. Uh, no one really knows how it works. But I think Pax kind of recognized that people already know how Pax works. It's fairly popular. And if you just let, let them brand it and, and you, you know, do some partnerships, you know, there is a need for top tier brands to have their own stable coin, right? It, it, it allows them to control some of the client base a little bit better. Well, it's not, it's not even, not to interrupt, but it's not even just about control. It's about trust, right? If I'm a Binance customer, I might not be familiar, especially if I'm based in Asia, potentially. Yeah. I'm not going to be brand. familiar with Paxos. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Whereas BUSD actually sounds safer than PAX, right? It has a USD in the name, at least. You know, PAX being the only stablecoin that didn't put USD in its name is kind of, was always interesting. I remember when it first came <laughs> out, you know, people were trying to chart PAX BTC, that they're saying PAX is a good buy, you know, it's, it's going up. So it's a funny one. But um, I think that those markets will just, it'll fragment. I think, I think people think too much in terms of winner take all all the time. It's, it's too competitive. It's, a lot of times it's about growing I'm a very like not. I try, I try not to do any zero sum thinking. Like I'm a very convex thinker. I try to be. So I think ultimately all these will grow as long as they build on their businesses, right? And it's the question of which one will have higher market share is a question of which of those markets will grow faster. I think there's you know a huge play now in the regulated stablecoin space because dollar rates are zero. You could have a whole host of settlements done in dollars. You could have a whole host of banking done in dollars, uh, stablecoin dollars that were originally done in the banking in the proper banking system and, and those channels. And especially now that for ERC-20, you know, stablecoin swaps like Curve and others, you know, they're very efficient now. So you can go in and out of different stablecoins very easily. You can do all these sorts of things. So I think the future is very bright for stablecoins. 
And it'll be a fun story to watch as it develops. This has been a great conversation so far. I want to close things out with something that's been very interesting to me. I wanted to get a story out on it before I started my vacation, but I just didn't have enough time. I'm talking about the drama around leverage tokens. You had the March 12, 13 blowout, after which Binance delisted FTX's leverage tokens. Binance is an investor in FTX. And then a few weeks after that, you had Binance then launch its own version of that product. There's been a lot of conversation about this product, the usefulness of it, um, whether or not people understand it, right? And understand the risks associated with it. What do you think of all this stuff going on? It's a a little bit strange to me, man. I I mean, I've been a big fan of Binance for a while, but I think that ultimately some of the stuff they've done recently is kind of questionable, right? So you have, you know, FTX had had their leveraged tokens. They were popular. Binance had them listed after they did, you know, the, the partnership and partial acquisition. And then, you know, he comes out and he says, you know what? People don't understand these. We're going to delist them. And, you know, I think I think Sam put out like a tweet thread where he's like, you know, we try to educate. I don't see the point of delisting these, you know, like we can just educate. And then for him, you know, for Binance to come out just a few weeks later to do it, like that, that's pretty, that's pretty strong of a move, right? It's It's not... Definitely not a. I don't know what their deal was, and I have no idea. But like, that's not a good, very good partnership. <laughs> um, <laughs> if people, if someone did that to me in any kind of that business, I, I would not be pleased. So I, and, and it's strange to me that they had to do that, right? It's, it's strange to me that they felt like that was a good move because that must hurt. You know, I mean, now like imagine if they try to go and acquire like a firm, like a partial acquisition, that firm will laugh at Binance. They'll think it's an absolute joke, right? So, so I think that. That's a bit strange. What I found even stranger, to be honest, was when they listed options recently, but they made it mobile only, and they made the prices like four times the fair price, and you could only uh, buy them. Mm-hmm. I think that that was kind of like that was kind of like my moment when I'm like, wait, like Binance is not really trying to protect customers anymore. They're just trying to milk before something. I don't know. So it's like, you know, because because with their IEO product before, they like negotiated tokenomics very well with projects. They made sure that they, you know, if you bought it, it would go up and that kind of stuff. So. In general, they were like very focused on protecting the customer, and I feel like now they're like very much in the milking phase. They're like, how do we milk customers? So that, to me, I think is something a little bit like of a shift and surprised me a bit. I think with like the the drama happening right now in Troy and uh, with Block VC, you know, it's it's kind of taking the whole Chinese Twitter, uh, like the Chinese crypto scene, is like focused on this nonstop on like wasting on and on WeChat, but um. You know, it, it's kind of like a big blow to them, right? Because like one of their IEOs is like basically a pure scam and got dumped to zero. So I think it seems like I wouldn't say the torch is fading, but I would say like it's definitely going in a strange direction. I I, I hope they bring it back to their fundamentals because fundamentally, Binance is supposed to be a place where retail investors can safely put their money and get a good deal, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what it's supposed to be. So they're supposed to get staking deals that are you know better than that they self stake. They're supposed to be getting like trading comms that are lower than. Most places, they're supposed to be getting liquidity that's better. They're supposed to be, you know, having a good experience. You know, like any token sales that are showed on them, that they're not going to get dumped to zero by like clear scam. So, so I think they've kind of gone a strange direction for sure. Uh, yeah. Well, if 2018, 2019 marked the rise of Binance from a, you know, upstart exchange to the dominant one in the industry, 2020 could represent a few jump the shark moments for the firm. Is this something that's going to continue? It remains to be seen. But 
I think a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that they're just such a large organization at this point. And I've talked to people about the FTX thing and they're definitely annoyed, but they also kind of concede to the fact that, Hey, like that's, this is one faction of the firm doing X CZ um, might know about it, but he has many different arms of the firm trying to pull his attention and impact his decision-making. And that's just, what happens when you have such a large organization, right? It's an interesting question. If this continues, maybe we see Binance go the route of BitMEX, right? Which almost was an unquestionable market leader and now commands a fraction of the market share it once had. I think in the Chinese market, like trust is already much higher for Huobi and even for OKX now than it is for Binance. I mean, there, there's a variety of uh, online metrics that people use for that, but that's kind of already been happening the past uh, few months. Um, and so I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, when Binance first came out, it, it was a spin out basically of OKX, right? And so, you know, the brand was built very well in the beginning off of, you know, protecting customers and, you know, CZ being on top of everything, being very, very approachable. And I think that, you know, now with this um, kind of a situation, it's it's not quite the same as it used to be. So, so I think that, because it's a much bigger firm, they have to make people to retain what made them good, right? They have to keep those values. And I think that, you know, chalking the FTX stuff up as sort of like a, you know, like he couldn't be focused on it. Like, I mean, CZ tweeted out all those things himself, right? I mean, he, he, he would obviously be aware. Um, and it's, it's about a firm culture too, right? If you, have a culture, if you have a firm culture which involves doing these kind of things, that's something that uh, is, is a, little bit, a little bit weird, right? So, I mean, <laughs> I, I remember... I remember last year during the Binance Launchpad days, right? There were like a number of projects where they would all come out and say like, hey, like we have the support of this Binance employee, that Binance employee, and we're going to be on Launchpad next month. We're going to be on Launchpad next month. All that kind of stuff, right? And it's like, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, as a CEO of a firm, like, like your culture goes down to your employees too, right? You're kind of responsible for what is happening on that level as well. Like, so, so, I, so I think that, you know, it, it did grow very, very fast. It, it made a lot of money very, very fast. And I think that there's always growing pains with that. And, and so I think for that reason too, like you tend to see these market share cycles and you tend to see like the, like the names that have uh, done well for many years, uh, they continue to keep market share once they've entrenched trust because it's so hard to find trustworthy names in crypto. Ain't that the truth? Well, we shall see how that all pans out. I think this was a great conversation. I, I don't think there's a single theme of the past few weeks in this market that we haven't hit on prime broker, the rise of tether, some of the issues underpinning Binance. This is going to be a good one. I'm excited for it to come out. Suzu, three arrows capital. Thank you for coming on the show. We hope to have you again on soon and stay safe out there. Take care, Frank. Appreciate it. Take care. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes. 
all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.